0: Uh, I'm Darlene Weaver. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies here at Villanova, and I am director of the Theology Institute. It's my pleasure to kick off what promises to be an engaging and fruitful day of reflection and dialogue on the topic of forgiveness. This is the Theology Institute's 41st annual conference. Our conferences sponsor first-rate work on issues at the intersection of faith and culture. Uh, The decision to focus on forgiveness as the theme for this year's conference grew out of a collaborative effort on the part of several faculty members currently working on forgiveness uh, here at Villanova. Over the last few years, with the support of Villanova's Office for Mission Effectiveness, uh, Villanova faculty across the disciplines have undertaken research and offered events and programs under the umbrella of what we call the Forgiveness Project. Today's conference is meant to showcase the work of some of the Forgiveness Project members, but we also seek to supplement and enrich it through the contributions of our invited scholars and professionals. They bring perspectives and experience uh, experience from various disciplines beyond theology. Together, our exploration of forgiveness ranges from interpersonal relationships to social and political reconciliation. And as you'll hear in the next session, uh, in ways that focus on the benefits of forgiveness for the one who does the forgiving, uh, as well as the one who is forgiven. Let me make a few announcements um, first. Uh, As you may have noticed, we have some artwork on display in the rear of the room. And uh, let me just give a little background about that. In 2008, uh, students from Villanova and from Greaterford Prison here in the area participated in a class called Beyond Forgiveness, Reconciliation, and Restorative Justice that was taught by Joyce Zavrich. Um, during the semester, students explored the concept of forgiveness from theological, psychological, philosophical, and political points of of view, uh, interpersonally, uh, socially, and so on. They viewed forgiveness from the perspective of the victim as well as the wrongdoer. And as a culmination of their study, each student articulated his or her understanding of forgiveness through artistic expression. So we're very pleased to have the work of some Villanova students as well as some inmates from Greaterford on display uh, in the rear of the uh, in the rear of the room. There are books um, on display and for sale. Uh, You can find them at the tables outside the double doors. Uh, There should be a sheet there letting you know if it's just on display, if it's free or if it's available for purchase. Um, If you're confused at all, the wonderful theology students staffing our registration desk can help you out. Um, There are restrooms through these double doors and over to your left. Let me ask you to silence your cell phone um, if you have one. Uh, And let me also then point out, this is my last announcement for the time being, that our concurrent sessions, so the one after this one, will be held in this way. The session on forgiveness and the law, which features Patrick Brennan and Penelope Pether, is going to be right here in this room. Um, the session on forgiveness and the New Testament, which features Paul Danov and Peter Spitaler is going to be in a room that's actually just behind you um, and you can enter uh, that directly in the corner over on this side. And then the um, concurrent session that deals with forgiveness between parents and children uh, that features William Warpahowski is going to be in the Connolly Cinema, which is near the coat rack. If you go through the double doors and just take a left as though you're going to exit the building on the opposite side, um, you'll just sort of make another U turn and uh, you'll see the cinema that, uh, there. Okay. Uh, Let me introduce then our our first uh, speaker as well as his his respondent. Um, We're so pleased to have Dr. Fred Luskin with us uh, today. He is director of the Stanford Forgiveness Project and an associate professor at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. Um, the Stanford Forgiveness Project has successfully explored forgiveness therapy with people who suffered violence in the Northern Ireland, Sierra Leone regions, as well as in the attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. Uh, in addition, Dr. Luskin's work has been successfully applied and researched in corporate, medical, legal, and religious settings. He currently serves as a senior consultant in health promotion at Stanford University. He presents lectures, workshops, and seminars throughout the United States on the importance and the health benefits of forgiveness. Dr. Luskin is the author of Forgive for Love and Forgive for Good, both of which are available for purchase um, here today, uh, along with dozens of articles in scholarly and popular venues. He is uh... this is not an understatement the go-to guy for national media outlets such such as National Public Radio, 2020, CNN, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and so on. So the next time you catch a little teaser that somebody's going to be talking about forgiveness on air, it's probably our speaker, Fred Luskin. Now, because the work of the Institute is meant to foster a dialogue um, between church and world and to uh, explore the intersection of faith and, and culture, a couple times today we're going to ask a theologian to offer um, a brief response to um, work on forgiveness that's coming to us from beyond the uh, discipline of, of theology. So I've asked um, a faculty member here at Villanova, Dr. Jesse Cohenhoven to give a quick response to Dr. Leskin when he's finished. Um, Jesse Cohenhoven is assistant professor of moral theology here at Villanova. His research interests include forgiveness, the nature of human freedom and responsibility, the theologies of Augustine, Barth, Luther, and Calvin and issues in bioethics such as the Human Genome Project. He's currently completing a manuscript called Determination, Disease, and Original Sin, an Augustinian Essay on Deep Responsibility. Um, So Dr. Luskin will speak for a while, Uh, Dr. Cohenhoven will offer a brief response, and then we'll have some time at the end of the session for some um, questions and answers and and conversation. Uh, Please join me then in welcoming Dr. Fred Luskin.
1: Thank you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm sitting there listening to uh, a little bit that I'm, I'm going to discuss the health benefits of forgiveness. Uh, I live in um, Palo Alto, California. Um, this is my winter coat. Th- there's not enough forgiveness out there to keep me healthy <laughs> in this weather. <laughs> this is all I brought. It's pretty funny. So I may forgive, but I'll get pneumonia. Um, <laughs> you know, so would you buy a used car from this guy? Um, the, the, it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing and I, and I was talking with the, my partner here who will be the discussant about forgiveness has been around forever um, just as people mistreating each other has been around forever and as long as people mistreat each other and as long as we fail then one of the qualities that we need to recover from that is called forgiveness for ourselves and others. As long as life is difficult and as long as it's unpredictable, we're going to need the quality of forgiveness to forgive God or nature or spirit or the way it is. And we're endowed with a wide range of responses to interpersonal unkindness, personal failing, and the horror of being a human being. You know, there's no, there's no escaping the horror. It's omnipresent and everywhere and eternal and just changes form. You know, came up with some number of like 250 million people have been murdered just by genocide by other people. And and you know, what, the teaching I do, I mean I'm a, I'm a public speaker and I lead workshops and I, I yak everywhere and you know I, I take groups of people and I lead them through classes and I, and, and and there's numbers like that or a hundred million people were killed, you know, during the twentieth century by, by murder and and then somebody gets upset because somebody gives them bad service in a restaurant. And you think, like haven't you read the papers? you know don't, don't, don't you know the world we inhabit and the, but what I'm getting at is, is these, are, these are the deepest like human questions there are, like are people evil, and and do I deserve the wounds and horror that I have experienced, and what am I supposed to learn from it and, and I don't think, I, I haven't met anybody who has fully answered these questions. But at the same time, I have seen through the teaching and research that we do and that other people have done, that when you teach people or encourage people or cultivate them to give more kindness in response to the unkindness that they have experienced they're healthier both emotionally and physically and in relationship that, that that there's something just really provocative about that 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 you take this sea of difficulty that everybody faces you know even if it's just your mortality or the fact that you know everybody's going to die and unpredictable things happen when people respond with goodwill, or resilience, or patience, or compassion, they're happier and healthier. And the, the, thing, the thing that is most interesting to me about that is people have been talking about like forgiveness and these kind of things for thousands of years. You know. But we do a few studies, and I'm in the New York Times. You know, there's something just weird about that. I, I, I don't know any other way to put it. You know, like, uh, Jesus' message on the cross is, what, a couple thousand years old? But when we came out with one of our studies that showed that um, forgiveness would, say, lower blood pressure or would lower the consequences of stress you know, I'm getting calls from half the news media in the United States. And, and and that's that's an interesting thing to live in a secular culture. And at the same time, I think that is phenomenal. Because what I think that some research people, such as myself, are doing is from a secular point of view showing that the virtues espoused by the religious traditions work. That there is a growing body of evidence that hostility is health harming. You no? Know? And and my conception, and I'm a at this point I'm I, I don't. I used to be a full-time researcher in preventive cardiology at the medical school, and, I, and I'm not. Quite, I'm heading towards retirement, but you know, not quite there. Semi-retired, and so now I have a made-up title which allows me to do work that I want to do. Called, I think, senior consultant in health promotion, which is which is fine. But when, when I was a full-time researcher and. You know, seeing what we were doing out of the medical school and what other people were doing, there is an abundance now of research about the harmfulness that hostility and mistrust and cynicism have on health. And the opposite is also true, that a tolerant, kindly, generous disposition impacts health. And there's no God. I mean, I'm I'm a secular person, so that's emotionally competent. There's just no way. And so one of the things that we set out to do with our research from a secular point of view was to show that the practice of forgiveness was health enhancing. I am personally not interested necessarily in where it comes from. I think it's as useful and as valid to forgive, because you think God wants you to, as you think it's good for your blood pressure. I personally believe they end up in the same place, that kindness is kindness. Just point of view. He says my religion is kindness. And if I look at what the data shows, it's that the experience of kindness, the thinking of kindness, the water of kindness, and the heart of kindness, those make you happier and healthier. And that's good, because that, to me, is another level of proof of the religious traditions, separate and not necessarily refuting religiously based perceptions. I don't doubt religiously based perceptions. I believe there are people who get in touch enough with whatever their spirit or God is where they tend to be much nicer, much more generous, much more gracious, and less selfish people. But I'm here to tell you that you can teach people those things. And they don't have to believe in any specific dimension of spirit or religion. And one of the things that we found that was really interesting is we, we were uncertain when we started this work about 12 or 13 years ago how we wanted to interface with the religious traditions. I mean, I, I live in a very like, religiously liberal area, the San Francisco Bay Area. So it's, it's, it's not fundamentalist-based. It's very open. And, and I don't mean that as any criticism of anything else. It's just a truth. And we, we were presenting this for that audience. But even there, when we started our work and we would dance around a little bit with some of the religious traditions, because in 1996... There's three research projects on forgiveness when I started this. Nobody knew what to do. And the deeper work was from the philosophical and religious traditions. That's where the the work was. It wasn't in science. But one of the things that we found that discouraged us immediately from pushing this from a religious point of view, and I'm not arguing with any religious point of views, was how people of specific religious faiths were so attached to their specific religious faith that they couldn't hear it outside of that language. And so we would give talks. And people would come up to us and say, you know, that's nice. But it would have been better if Jesus was in it. Or that's nice, but the Buddha said it better. Or that's nice, my particular sect believes this. And I got very anxious about that because I didn't want forgiveness to be part of what I saw as some of the root of all the world's problems, which is that each of us thinks that our specific point of view is right, and many of the others are wrong. And I started to understand, and I'm giving you some evolution of this, that that thinking that I'm right and everybody else is wrong is at the core of unforgiveness. Because I worked with Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland who were unforgiving of a different version of Jesus. And I can't tell you how many places I have come into where people are fighting each other over their belief system. And the arguments, you take it even the belief system of Republican versus Democrat in this country. And so what I tried to do was see that forgiveness is a way of being in this world When you get disagreed with, when people do things that you think are wrong, when you get harmed, when you don't feel like you were any reason to be harmed, when somebody takes your most cherished idea of the way the world should be and spits on it, such as, you should never murder my child. That's an absolutely cherished idea which most people hold. And yet we've done a number of research projects now with people who have had their children murdered. And so forgiveness, I came to understand, was holding your cherished ideas, not necessarily relinquishing them, but being willing to be loving even when those cherished ideas are attacked. And I didn't see that enough in the religious traditions to use a religious tradition to teach this. That's what I'm saying to you, why I created a secular technology that has allowed people of almost every religious tradition to use. And they fit their religious tradition into this very simple secular technology. And the technology is that unforgiveness is the same as stress. I was working in the medical school. I was a rec- And anger is one of the leading contributors to heart disease. And what happens when you're angry? Your body releases adrenaline and cortisol and norepinephrine. And your nervous system dysregulates and your endocrine system goes ape, and if you practice anger or unforgiveness, then your nervous system changes so that disequilibrium you experience is normal. And let me explain that to you. If you don't like your mother, or you don't like your wife's mother, or you don't like your grandma, or you don't like your boss, then every time you condition, and causes you to feel stressed almost instantly the second, the nanosecond, that you perceive that person, your body is under stress. It happens whether you're Catholic, or Buddhist, or Lutheran, or Zoroastrian. It don't matter. And calming that stress down is a significant part of forgiveness. Just chill. (laughs) I mean, seriously, chill. You're mad, chill. You don't like what they did, take a breath. You wish it had been different, so do we all. Relax a little. Because what happens when you're angry, or what happens when you're stressed, is blood flow drains away from the parts of the brain that think creatively and straightforwardly. It's that simple. That's what stress is designed to do. That's its purpose. The purpose of your body's stress response is to make you stupid. So you don't spend time planning your dinner, deciding what movie to go to, or thinking creatively about to help heal the world. Your body gets you focused directly on something wrong and gets you the heck out of there or to beat it up. When you create a pattern of stress around a particular incident or person, your entire mind-body becomes limited to a stress response towards that experience. And you have not that much mental capacity to bring it don't matter what your faith is it don't matter what you believe in it don't matter whether you live in a blue state or a red state that's the way we're wired that's the way most of the animal kingdom is wired but we have a prefrontal but i'm looking we may think it's about grandma i mean it is about grandma or our neighbor but it's also about that exquisite to me, mystery of this body. It's about the exquisite mystery of a body that the second you think of someone you don't like, it doesn't matter if somebody is telling you they love you. If the whole world is telling you they love you and you're thinking of somebody you don't like, your nervous system is tight and your belly is cringing. And at that second you have created the physiologic experience of unforgiveness. Now you can do that once, or you can do it a thousand times. But it's the same experience every single time you do that. And you have to break that pattern. And it doesn't take years. I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I mean, for me it's a funny story. I, I try to walk a fine line. Because I happen to believe that if people actually followed their religions, I wouldn't be needed. (laughs) That's what I believe. Like I I I get invited into church the first like the first like I don't know, church I'm trying to remember what it was, but I was invited into a church to give a talk, and the minister was, was really like wanted me to talk and I didn't quite understand this then. This was, you know, a decade or more ago. And he comes up to me and says, you know, basically our parishioners are just struggling. We had a a bad minister who left, and now there's a lot of bad will, and everybody hates each other, and you know, there's all this unforgiveness. And I blankly looked him in the eye and said, what do you need me for? Your whole religion's based on forgiveness. And he, he said, well, he, he didn't really know what to say. I said, you know, like that's, that's the point of your path here. And, and he said, well, we, we don't, I guess we don't practice it that much. And I said, well, you have technology even. I mean, I know you've been given an injunction to pray for your enemy. So do that. And the amazing news is, if you pray for your enemy, your blood pressure will go down. And your stomach will untighten. I'm gonna put it, I'm gonna look at it from that point of view. But you already have the technique. I will tell you that praying for your enemy, there's, there's studies on this. There are there's a couple of research projects on yoga practices that have used something called mantra, the, the repetition of a holy thing. But you can say Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, or you know, may, may I meet Buddha, or whatever it is. It doesn't matter what the, what the fill-in is, but the repetition of a loving, holy thought in people with um, some lung problems helps them breathe more fully. And it helps people with cardiac problems relax, because it's, it's the same nervous system. So I said to him, well, just ask your people to practice their faith. It's very hard. They invited me in anyway. I mean, I was trying to you know, get myself out of business here. It's sometimes easier when people hear it from a secular point of view. You know, I went into a... a, 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 a like, what I, what I can say... In, in the simplest terms is your, your life is going along normally and your heart rhythm is something like this, it's, it's a sinus rhythm, it's just you know it's reasonably even, it has a nice amplitude, it's just like this and that that's put onto a computer screen when they take the, ch- the jolt So it's like this. Okay. If you get mad at somebody well, again, within a hundredth of a second, this turns to jagged. Your heart's in distress. Just goes like this, and then it's jagged. And the important thing is the amplitude shifts. And when the amplitude shifts, your body for the body, but it's also what's dangerous for the mind. So you're going along with this, and you think, "Gee, I hate George Bush, or I hate Bill Clinton, or I hate my mother, whatever it is," and then it gets like this. And then it calms down a little bit. And then you think, oh, this traffic is terrible. So it gets like this. And then it goes like this. But you picture the people who have real grudges. Every single day they're saying those kind of things to themselves. This is becoming normal. Okay? If you picture that and you ask yourself, is this what I want to do to this body? this precious body and this precious gift? Is this what I want to do? Because the anger is in me. The resentment's in me. It's not in them. It's in me. Is this what I want to, is this the gift I want to give this body? The remarkable thing is, so you have your body going like this, your heart rate, and then you get angry. But if you think a deeply loving thought, this gets better. That's what's also so remarkable. This gets better. So you have your normal resting rate, and then you have love. And then you have forgiveness and compassion and goodness. Your heart opens to it on a physical as well as a literal level. I, I can't believe that's a mistake. And I can't believe, and this is me, that we weren't meant to discover the science of this. The rudimentary tools we've had for 3,500 years when the yogis were the first people to know that positive emotion was good for you. And then saints have been saying this forever. I mean, there's no improvement on the prayer of St. Francis. There's no way to improve that. But imagine that there's a little bit of a technology and a EKG reading that shows you that if you say the prayer of Saint Francis, I I, I find that wonderful, and I think that's the natural progression of human beings, you know, as, as their minds become more able to hold science. So you got this, you got this, and the question is, what do I do with this? You know, this this distress in me and one of the first things we understood is that you need to breathe to open your body to the parasympathetic settlement of your fight or flight system. This is as simple as I can make it. And it's called nothing more than taking full, slow, deep breaths into and out of your belly. So why don't we all do that? I want everybody to close their eyes for just a minute and what I want you to do is inhale slowly and deeply and fill your belly with air as you inhale so that you're opening your belly you're making it bigger as you inhale and then when your breath is full just gently push the breath out with your diaphragm And you want to have as little movement and effort in your shoulders and your chest. And one of the ways that I work with this with a more religious audience is I say, inhale and appreciate the gift that you're given of breath and of life. And don't resist it. Open to it allow your body to fully open to its own goodness. And the more you can relax your belly, and the more you can open not just the top part of your belly, but the lower part of your belly, the more relaxed your body is, and the more relaxed your body is, the more capable your mind is of having loving, positive thoughts. And the lower abdomen is where most of us hold tension that we don't even know. And the, the thing, the exquisite thing about these bodies is that they're so completely linked to the mind that when the mind says, I'm in danger, the body tightens up. And when the mind says, I forgive, the body relaxes. But when the body can relax, it allows your mind to have more choice. So take one more breath like that, and then allow your eyes to open. So what we learned very easily and simply is this. You take an angry person, or a grieved person, or a bitter person, or a despairing person that their life will never work out, and you teach them to breathe. And you teach them to breathe in a way where they're telling their mind and body that they're safe in this world, even if it's only for a minute. And when you're safe in this world, when your mind isn't constructing enemies, and your body isn't tight, thoughts like forgiveness are natural to human beings. They're not foreign, they're not strange, they're not weird, they're natural. Faith does this as well. People who have faith and actually practice it and hold it, as opposed to profess it, they get this because they, if spirit will protect them, they don't have to be like this, and they don't have to have so many enemies. That's wonderful. But if you don't have that, you can breathe. And it can even help you get it. Teach them this anyway. We were teaching all these heart patients to just breathe, and it'll, you know, reduce some of the jolts of electricity into your cardiovascular system. just breathe. And then the other thing that we saw, which was really, really, really simple, was grateful people forgave more readily. What a duh. (laughs) Duh. So instead of fighting with people about who they didn't like or what it was that went wrong, we taught people to be more grateful. We just went right at it. Breathe, and be grateful. That'll work for almost anyone. And I'm simplifying this dramatically, but I'm telling you those work. So if instead of waking up in the morning and thinking, I hate my boss, or All right, my life isn't fair, think something better. Wish somebody well. Very simple. But it just, it smooths out. And if you look at like EEGs, they smooth out. The the brain, the, the stuff from the top part of your brain smooths out. And what's really amazing is when you're really thinking loving, positive thoughts, most of the systems in your body harmonize with each other, which is really something. You can watch a readout of the nervous system, and some of the endocrine system, and the brain impulses, and the heart rate. And they all have the same wave pattern. Now, I believe that's part of the good that happens to people when they have a positive religious experience. I believe that. Is all I'm saying is, from a secular point of view, we can teach through simple, simple, simple practices, the ways to calm the mind and body down so you're more likely to have what would be called a religious experience, I direct it towards the mechanism of teaching forgiveness. Very simple. One more thing. At its heart, non-forgiveness is an argument with your own life. That's what it is. And you never win fighting City Hall. And boy, do people try. And the argument is, I should have gotten a better mother. Or I should have had a better ex-wife. Or I shouldn't have had that traffic accident. Or I should have won the Nobel Prize or, you know, I should have written the great American novel, or I shoulda, I shoulda, it shoulda. But at the heart of unforgiveness is an argument with your own life. And that is a losing argument. And every time we argue with our own life, we cause stress. And so what I... Have come up with, and I'm giving you very simple rudiments of it. Is very simple practices that reduce that stress, and we have shown now. I have only a few. More, lowers depression, lowers blood pressure, lowers stress. Does your laundry? It's. it's <laughs> But it doesn't give you enough brain power to bring a cushion. It makes you more efficacious. Forgiveness, just like all the virtues, is simply latent within each of us. It just rests there waiting for us to tap it. It just says, I'm here. You find me when you want me. You can be angry and pissy and self-righteous for 170 million years if you want. I'm just waiting here. it's just there it's latent and when we encourage people to go there there's something that happens to the human being when goodwill touches them you know i happen to believe that's what the religious traditions are saying that something happens to the human being when goodwill resides in us that's what i believe But you can use all sorts of methods to get there. As long as a few things are understood, that you want to stop arguing with life as best you can. You want to search for the good in life, not just notice what's wrong. You want to work with your nervous system. Like you need to work consciously to calm your nervous system. You want to have compassion for the suffering of others, not just yourself, so you see the universality in it. One of the things that keeps people from forgiveness is narcissism, that it's my suffering, not the suffering. You know, one of the things that you'll find if you study history is that it's exactly the same as now. When, when, I, when my son was younger, he used to go, he used to like watching all the different ways that people would kill each other in movies. That, that was the theme that I got out of what he liked about movies. And I remember, so I went to with him to like three movies over a period of a couple days. And, and, and you know, one of them was probably one of the Middle Earth ones, and another one. So here's that, and they're killing each other. And another one is from the 1700s, where people were killing each other. And then one was in the future. But I was struck by, like, the commonality of human hatred and righteousness, but the mechanisms changed. So in the past, you know, they threw rocks and they put them on fire. And in the future, they were launching intergalactic things. And 200 years ago, they shot cannonballs or whatever. But the, the harshness behind it was exactly the same. And, and every human being who had a loved one killed, I would imagine, experienced very similar grief. And, and so when we can distance ourselves just a little bit from the omnipresence of our own woundedness and see it as part of the human experience, that's another pathway into forgiveness. Because then the question comes, since this isn't unusual, unique, or even special, what do I do? And, and again, uh, what we decided, was we were gonna create a forgiveness training that simply taught people what to do that didn't argue with life didn't have them spend weeks telling us about who hurt them like that's what one of the things we cut down is we know you're hurt otherwise you wouldn't be here so we'll take that as a given and now we're going to teach you how to forgive and the the last thing that I that I will talk about is these research projects are done in groups. I mean we don't we don't we don't. I mean I do a little bit of private practice, but we were able to show that for normal offenses, you know, just your garden variety. My mother didn't wasn't good enough. My father, my neighbor, my ex, my my something, myself. It took nine hours of training to make significant results, which is not a huge amount of group time, six 90-minute sessions. For the men and women from Northern Ireland who had their families killed around them, was 15 hours of training. We just sent a research project to Sierra Leone. What I'm saying is because people to stop the unforgiveness, and not encourage it by showing them the costs of unforgiveness. See that it's natural within themselves to extend that, with some training, to other things in their life. And, and this is where this is probably a good place for me to stop. This. It's it's just just to imagine this because this is so simple. If everybody in here was, let's say, mad, let's, let's say, I don't know, something nothing, like the roof leaked. And, you know, we were getting wet and it was cold, and we were all, you know, pissy about that. And you, you could see this general rumbling. And then somehow we got saved from something worse, like, you know, something happened. And you just feel your body like, oh, thank you. And in that moment of thank you, the roof didn't matter. So when you're driving down the street and you're thinking of somebody you don't like, if you could shift your attention to somebody you love and feel it, because you're full. And what is all I'm saying is that shows the phenomenal flexibility of our nervous system and our body and the remarkable power that we have to regenerate
2: Well, my thanks to Darlene for the invitation to give this response and also to Dr. Luskin for his talk. My um, comments, I think, are going to be directed not simply at uh, Dr. Lustin's um, talk, but uh, more generally at what I see going on in the world of, of psychological approaches. To forgiveness, um, and they'll be largely credited about this research. Uh, first of all, I, movement has been a good thing in general, um, and I also think it's true that we often do attend too much to. And psychologists have offered some helpful techniques in um, trying to reassess how we attend to the things that are going on in our lives and elsewhere. We often blame ourselves or others more than we should, um, or perhaps when we shouldn't at all, and it is important to get in the habit of thinking clearly about who is to blame and how much. We should not, for instance, take things too personally. Uh, The thing is, though, I don't think that what I've been talking about so far is forgiveness. Uh, Forgiveness, after all, is a response to being wronged, but all I've mentioned so far is the importance of not thinking you've been wronged in ways that you uh, have not been wronged. So far, then, uh, there's nothing to forgive. It's important not to have too many negative emotions, but not the same thing as talking about forgiveness. Now, most people agree with this in principle, um, but in practice, a lot of psychologists often fail, for instance, to distinguish between getting over imaginary hurts and forgiving in response to real injustices. So they can make it sound as though we might forgive any time we're upset. But that's not really true. We can only really forgive if we've been wronged by a competent moral agent. For instance, if a friend of yours dies from natural causes, that is indeed hurtful. But we don't forgive our friends for, c- for giving us that kind of grief because they have not done us an injustice. We also don't forgive rainstorms when they say, delay baseball games. (laughs) And and that's because they're not competent moral agents. So what this points to is the importance of defining what forgiveness is carefully. Most people today understand forgiveness as overcoming some negative feeling, uh, like anger or resentment. But this is not a sufficient understanding of forgiveness. One reason why is that it doesn't say anything to discriminate forgiveness from other kinds of getting over it. Um, for instance, if we're angry and we go for a jog or, or maybe depending on who you are you go to the firing range and then afterwards you feel better, is that really that's not forgiveness is it? Um, or if you could take a drug that would make you feel less angry, would, would that be forgiveness? We don't usually speak as though it is, because we tend to think that forgiveness is not simply an attitude change, but a change that is motivated by appropriate moral reasons. Love, perhaps, being foremost among them. Forgiveness. In much psychological literature, forgiveness... um, is, is op- the, the way that they speak about forgiveness is open to the charge that they are using the idea of forgiveness not really as a moral response to wrongdoing, but rather as a kind of a psychological technique for self-help. But avoiding negative thoughts and feelings for the sake of your own peace of mind I think is not a morally serious view and it is not forgiveness which must confront evil. A related problem is that what many psychologists advocate is basically overlooking the bad things that happen, um, the sin that happens against us. Now, it might not seem fair to describe many psychologists' views as a kind of overlooking, um, but I think it's notable that many psychologists, there are some exceptions, uh, have very little to say about the importance of things like repentance uh, on the behalf of wrongdoers, um, the importance of reform Moreover, their views tend to make the fading of negative emotions central to forgiveness. Right? So forgiveness is stopping being angry. But the wrong itself, the thing that made you angry, if you're legitimately angry, has not been dealt with. Rather, it is being emotionally overlooked. Perhaps you've distracted yourself from thinking about it. Sometimes there are good reasons to distract yourself from thinking about things that make you angry, but I don't think that that's forgiveness. Now, I agree that Dr. Luskin and others do not promote condoning evil. I'm not saying that. Um, But this does not refute my suggestion that their views of forgiveness promote a kind of overlooking of evil, because on these approaches, evil is not so much dealt with as left behind. This is too individualistic a conception of forgiveness, because it ends up making forgiveness only a change in oneself. There's a lot more to say about that, but let me move to a related issue. Modern psychology's main question about forgiveness is how victims can feel better when they are upset. I think it notable that Jewish and Christian traditions tend to emphasize a different question, i.e., mm-hmm. how can perpetrators be released from their guilt? So they look at things from the perspective often of the victimizer more than that of the victim. When the psalmist cries out to God cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The psalmist is not I think mainly asking God to get over being angry rather the psalmist is requesting that God blot out my transgressions. This is a conception of forgiveness that remains powerful for those who recognize that they have done evil. We want to be freed, not just from feeling bad, but from being bad. Consider, as an example, Alcinda Hawana's discussion of the experiences of modern day child soldiers in Africa who have returned to their communities in Angola and Mozambique. Child soldiers are both the victims and perpetrators of brutal violence, physical and psychological. Some survivors manage to return to their homes and villages While they may be whole in body, they are rarely whole in spirit. Their evil pasts present a problem to themselves and their communities. The UN and other agencies often offer biomedical and therapeutic treatments, but these attempts to help often fail. Hawana argues that traditional approaches valued by these child soldiers' own communities are sometimes, at least, more efficacious because they address a need for purification Here's one representative story about an attempt to cleanse a child soldier from guilt as told by his father. We took him to the bush about two kilometers away from our house. There we built a small hut covered with dry grass in which we put him still dressed in the dirty clothes he came back with from the guerrilla camp. Inside the hut he was undressed. Then we set fire to the hut and Paulo, the soldier, was helped out by an adult relative. The hut the clothes, and everything else that he had brought from the soldier camp were burned in the fire. Paulo then had to inhale the smoke of some herbal remedies and was bathed with water, treated with medicine to cleanse his body internally and externally. Now here we have a quest for forgiveness understood as a release from one's past granted by the bestowal of a new identity. The need to be washed clean to be relationally and morally, not simply psychologically, healed, explains why forgiveness is so deeply desired by soldiers like Paolo. On this view, forgiveness is an irreducibly social action, primarily concerned not with changing the emotions of those offended, although of course it has implications for their emotions, but rather with changing the moral status of the offender, freeing the sinners from guilt, for the sake of reconciliation. Forgiveness involves a recognition of sin then, and the opening of a way forward for the sinner. But that's quite a different view of forgiveness than the therapeutic one many psychologists offer. In closing, I want to consider one possible response to my suggestion that psychologists like Dr. Luskin and Robert Enright and others um, are talking about something other than forgiveness. They might argue that I've got my kind of forgiveness and they've got theirs. It's just a verbal disagreement about a definition. Well, I think it's more than that. But I think it's also important to evaluate what they are advocating, whether we call it forgiveness or not. My concerns about these views can be inferred from what I've already said. While the kind of getting over it that many psychologists advocate is sometimes appropriate, I think their views are often too self-centered, we forgive for ourselves, it's often argued, and too unconcerned with moral questions. They spend a lot of time talking about how we can forgive attitude toward life. Shape your expectations of the world in such a manner that you will not be more than mildly upset about the bad things that inevitably happen. And perhaps this sort of chill attitude might lead to fewer heart attacks. But if so, I'm not simply by that fact, convinced that we then have on our hands a human good. The appropriate way to pursue happiness, it seems to me, is to live a life of witness to what you think is right, whether that leads to pain or not. What is bodily healthy should indeed be part of the conversation about what attitudes it is good to have when wrong is done, but they cannot by themselves provide the answer, because we have more to live for than bodily health. Finally, I think it's useful to at least consider the possibility that a properly managed and channeled anger does not have to consume or destroy one's life, even if one never lets go of it. Indeed, there are times when a smoldering, smoldering and righteous anger might be a basis for a life well lived. Perhaps Simone Wiesenthal's life of hunting Nazis is one example. If that's so, we'll have to find ways to defend forgiveness on less therapeutic grounds. Thank you. Where or how do you get the training
0: to do the training, say for others, for groups? Teach to teach, teach the training. Um, The question is how do you, how are you trained in order to train
1: others? That question is, you have to practice it yourself that's the biggest training and that's the most important training um, well, that that's I'm not I don't mean that just to be flip I mean that we teach each other what we actually do and believe in so I work with a lot of therapists and people who have a kind of lip service for forgiveness but it's not not their language and it's not the way they behave generally speaking. So the first place is you need to practice inside of you. If through that you feel called at some level to help others, then you can look for technologies that will make that easier. So again some technologies are religious. And some technologies are therapeutic. You could be, you're, you know, if you're a therapist, there's plenty of ways. Um, my technologies are medical or scientific, and any of them will work. Again, <laughs> pragmatic. The, the, I mean, from the more personal point of view, I wrote a book that's helped, you know, hundred thousand more people, but.
0: Are there uh, other other questions? Yeah. Okay. Right. You can project. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to
3: ask, I, I guess, the uh, doctor, um, can you...
0: I belong to an uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and early on they always talk about um, if you don't get something, you act as if until it, you know, sort of presents itself as a, a, as a, as a, as a moral given or whatever. Can you You do do that that. to kid yourself into into forgiving? In other words, can you act as if you forgive until it actually does become um, something genuine? Can you trick your body into believing that you are indeed forgiving if you haven't really
3: forgiven? Do you understand what I'm trying to ask? I mean, it's like an act as if of situation.
0: Or is that stupid? <laughs> I just want to know if I'm going to try it. Um have
1: to to it first. let me let me let me let me talk about the pre- the prejudice that's in your question and and your prejudice is your unforgiveness is more true than your forgiveness. We all have both all the time. It's what we it's what our deepest hook and our deepest belief is in. We're in a culture that prizes anger or prizes victimhood. So we, we decide that those are the truest emotions. But even people who don't like other people, they have moments of compassion or mercy or things towards those people, and they disregard them because they think they're all true. And then you decide which one is your goal. And, and that changes the way you hold the transitory nature of your emotions. Um, you know, During a day, we will have. Literally dozens of different emotional experiences. We take a few of them and make a story about this is our life. That story provides context and meaning and makes the transitoriness true. So, very specifically, I will ask somebody to do an experiment. Okay, so you just told me whatever it is, you don't like X. Well, let's just picture for 15 seconds, you have empathy for X's predicament. How does that feel? Okay. Which would you prefer for yourself? You'll have entirely different insights about X depending on what you prefer. It's up to you. X did what they did. Now, you have more control over your response to X. Now, that response could be anything. But the point of our work is to give people more control and to allow them to understand just how varied their responses are. So you want to try it? No. Okay. I don't need to
3: Hi. Um, this is a question for Dr. Ko Um I'm just wondering if you feel that the two views are mutually exclusive, or can they not both um, coexist or be integrated? Dr. Luskin's view sort of is focused more on the person needing to forgive, and from what I heard from yours, unless I missed some of it, um, yours, if not more focused on, at least includes the perpetrator or the person needing to be forgiven, is it not possible to use what Dr. Luskin is suggesting for the the victim or the person needing to forgive to take care of themselves? And at the same time, can they not take steps toward reform or justice or um, whatever may need be implied for um, the person who has caused the ill? Um, I bring this up because of some work I do in the city with. The organization of mothers and grandmothers who've lost children to violence in the city of Philadelphia and this is a huge question and issue for them and one of the things that some of them describe as a turning point for them in, in the process of um, what I'm learning to consider as traumatic growth is at some point they kind of have a, a moment of maybe awakening or feeling that Um, They're not going to let the person take their life too. Um, They've taken the life of their child, and they are struggling with their own existence, um, physically, emotionally. There are tremendous physical consequences. Um, So I'm wondering if Dr. Luskin's um, view could help those victims, or however you would want to call them, take care of themselves, but if they still don't have There is still isn't room and a need to take steps to toward affecting justice or reform.
2: Thank you. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think I have a lot more to say about it than I can now, but but at least briefly. Um, Yeah, in principle, there's no reason why um, these these approaches um, the more traditional uh, Christian approach that I've briefly articulated and um, one that's offered by many psychologists today. There's no in principle reason why they need to be or have to be antagonistic. I think in the best case scenario we can understand um, many of the things that a lot of psychologists are saying as a kind of a subset of a more complex uh, view um, that's um, you know, has more things to say, but um, would could agree on certain basic things. Um, that said, I think the the context of one's talk about overcoming your negative emotions is really important. And if it's a matter of just saying to people, "Well, you'll feel better um, if you if you decided to get over your anger," or something like that, that I think can be dangerous if it doesn't um, lead to or incorporate a desire for reform or justice as you talked about. Um, because in the end uh, just you, you, some individual feeling better, I mean that's important but it's not going to change the, a system that's screwed up which perpetuates these kinds of um, victimizations and hurts. So I think it's important um, for forgiveness to also be understood as a confrontation of evil, uh, not simply a way of trying to um, change your, um, what you're attending to or change um, just how you feel. But you want to come back on that?
3: I just had recently done some reading um, about traumatic growth and some of the um, aspects of it having to do with the trauma itself, tr- transition, transformation and transcendence and in that model which is for the greater good or towards society and I think it um, for this particular group organization that I am uh, affiliated with uh, there was wisdom in the um, woman who founded it because it was founded on taking action um, doing something to convert their grief into action to save another life and to work towards some systemic
2: reform. Yeah, and I think that that's important because um, sometimes a, a simply therapeutic uh, perspective on forgiveness has a tendency to say, well, how can I help myself, but not to care about transforming those who have done evil, you know, the perpetrators. Um, but I think it's important to be able to understand forgiveness as, a, as an attempt to open up a way forward, not just for yourself, but for those who've done evil as well. They may not embrace it, um, but we need to challenge people in their evil and also then show them a kind of love that is not you know, a doormat kind of love, but a kind of love that asks them to reform their identity. And that's why I argue that the best understanding of what forgiveness involves is that it
3: offers people a way forward into a new identity so that there's a hope for both parties.